0: Can you turn your hobby or side hustle into a million dollar business? Well, that's exactly what my guest today did and i'm so excited to bring this interview with victoria wick to your earbuds today victoria has such an amazing story of starting her creative jewelry business on the side in order to make some extra money for her family and how she eventually scaled that to a 500 million dollar business she is bringing such amazing tips and tactics and mindset hacks just about how you can approach your creative business and see the success that it deserves. You're going to absolutely love this episode. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Well Paid Creative Podcast, where we discover how to run a profitable and satisfying creative business. I'm your host, Gabrielle Chipier, and I'm going to share with you what I've learned in my 17 years as a creative pro, building my own business from barely scraping by to thriving from attracting quality clients to charging what you're worth and creating amazing work you love without the risk of burnout and overwhelm. But I don't know it all, so in this podcast we're going to learn a lot together as I interview experts and reflect on my own experiences, both the good and the bad. Before we dive into this show, if you want access to free resources, trainings, and a community of creative pros just like you, hop on over to wellpaidcreative.com where you can find all this and more. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to The Well-Paid Creative. I am here with Victoria Wick, and I am incredibly excited to talk to her today. She has done some amazing things, folks, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Welcome, Victoria. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to having an amazing conversation and a lot of fun.
0: Wonderful. So tell us a little bit more about you because you have just a jaw-dropping story and I think people are going to just get so much out of it. So tell us a little bit more about you and where you're where you're coming from.
1: So um, I grew up I was born and raised in South Korea and uh, my parents at the time we left South Korea you know was right after the Korean I guess a civil war that, that that had taken place that's divided the country for a while well, it's still divided, I guess. I guess. It's the only country that's still divided. But um, 10, 20 years later, they were just feeling the impact of that. So a lot of um, girls, they didn't want girls. And so the girls were being abandoned. You know, They dropped them off on orphanages and all that. And you know, my parents had four girls. So they decided that um, they would immigrate to America where they would have uh, better opportunities. And uh, there was nothing wrong with being a, um, stay at home mom or an artist, you know, whatever you want to be. But my father felt that that should be her choice, not the society's choice. So we came here. And, um, you know, like a lot of uh, other immigrant families, we struggled a lot in the beginning, just struggled Mm -hmm. and struggled and struggled. And um, uh, basically, when he got here, we got all our assets frozen in both countries. So he ended up with 30 bucks in his pocket. So I got hyper educated, you know, he believed that uh, you need to get educated get your college degree get your MBA all of those things because that in his mind that was the fastest path to success so i did that i worked really hard i learned to speak english all that and i got myself uh, great jobs you know in the end or what the society saw as great jobs you know i had job security um, all that but in corporate america i was kind of really suffocating Mm-hmm. Because if you're a creative person, you're create. That's who you are. You don't just turn it on or off. And um whenever I went to meetings and they were going to going through financials and all of that stuff, I was just literally bored. And um every night I would come home driving about an hour and a half, ninety minute uh, drive from my my work to my home. <clears throat> and I just, you know, one day just had enough of it. And so I had sort of like a mic drop moment <laughs> and decided mm-hmm. that. I had no choice but to start my own company. Um, What I found interesting in corporate America is that if you're creative and you're creating this amazing content or amazing, in my case, jewelry designs and all that, I usually had to get funding from someone who had no background in creative. They just looked at numbers and you had to justify numbers. And Mm -hmm. those numbers that usually meant, well, how many customers are you going to get or how many people? So it was a broad, you had to make it very generic, so you could you, know, you could be everything to everybody pretty much, which, as you know, is a killer. Mm. Uh, it's a killer product, but it also kills you as a creative person. so so that's my journey. I started my little company uh, partly to uh, spend more time with my family and partly to fund myself. And then you know my original goal was just to make like thirty five grand a year, which was a lot of money at that time, still back in nineteen eighty nine. But I thought my dream thing would be thirty-five grand a year, working six hours a day, maybe three or four days a week, doing what I want to do. And um, it turns out I ended up in my career since then. I've done over five hundred million dollars in sales, and that's the that's my story. You know, wow. now I am living the life I want to live. That's
0: just an amazing story, and to go from just having a small jewelry business that you just wanted to run to fulfill yourself to yeah. building it into this almost an empire 500 million dollars is almost mind-boggling. It's one of those numbers that you can't quite wrap your, your head around, right? Right. So, what were the what did that growth look like in the beginning because like you said before you were happy with just having a smaller business? Did that growth kind of come as a byproduct of you just doing what you did well, or did you know a big opportunity come by? What sort of happened there?
1: Yeah. So actually I've uh, tooled my business. I built my business around my children's schedule, mm-hmm. which is, um, and I think this is one of the key lessons for all of you who are creative, creative people who have so many creative ideas and you know, when you're creative, you're constantly having to validate whether your idea is actually good or you're just wacko because mm-hmm. the society sees us that way. So uh, it's really important that you plan your failures. Like you almost have to test to make sure. So I would always have like a good, better, best version of the same rendering. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would have like a price point A, B, and C, but more importantly, my kids, when they were going to nursery school, then they went to kindergarten and all that. Um, they were usually out of my house by eight o'clock. I lived really close to their, to, to their school. So I had about 6.00 AM to 8.00 AM, right up to about 8.00 AM. So about two hours of, you know, highly productive time. I'm, I was in California. Most Californians, you know, culturally, they don't want to get up at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> we like to, you know, kind of get up when it's surfing time. So Um, I had, my customers were mostly East Coast, so at nine o'clock Eastern time, 6 a.m. was nine o'clock Eastern time, but also it was about one, two o'clock in the afternoon in Europe, depending on which country. So I basically Mm -hmm. looked for customers in those time zones and Mm -hmm. then drove my kids to school. uh, I came back about 9, 10 a.m., had breakfast, and then I worked from 10 a.m. to two, California time, for California audiences. And, and then between 2 to 7 p.m., uh, I just checked out. I didn't answer any phone calls. Or, you know, in those days, we didn't have email, which was really great. Mm. No email, no cell phones, or no texting. So it actually worked out fine. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't anywhere near a landline. And then about uh, 8, 9 p.m. California time is about noon in Hong Kong, South Korea, and so forth. So my distribution was international from day one, basically. You know, I mean, not, when, not from day one, but year one. And um, it was harder to do that. But the business was very diverse. Um, A lot of times I would get trends sort of like what was happening about six months ahead from Europe, like, you know, a lot of shows, I would watch runway shows on TV, because jewelry sort of follows the, the apparel by about six months. So we got a heads up on that. So that was really great. But as far as you know, starting up about like having a dream and then the business grows exponentially. What happens is I start my business so I can spend more time with my family, but then you start working more hours than when you were in corporate America. So I then had to figure out, oh my God, you know, do I really want this now? And you know, how much money do I actually need? And how much mm-hmm. growth can I handle? Cause I didn't have the bandwidth for all that. So, you know, There were several times in my career where I had to just like shut down and kind of pull back. And interesting, whenever I've pulled back and said, "You know what? I don't want to do this anymore," and whenever I've told my clients, for example, "You know, I can't take this order. I'll I'd be more than happy to introduce you to my competitors because I just don't have the bandwidth for this," or I would just tell them, "You know, look, I'm just not good at this." You know, Mm -hmm. I remember um, I had a buyer from Macy's. You know, she told me i want to give you all my basic studs study earrings business and i said i'm just not good at it i'm not good at basics for one thing and number two that's the category that really requires a lot of volume at great prices because to the price point item and i'm just never going to be the cheapest guy on the planet so you're gonna have to go find somebody new or you know i can you know refer you to somebody else and every time i've done that the buyers actually were willing to pay more money. Be, pay more money and stick with me because I gave them such great service, and they knew that whatever I choose to do was going to be, you know, done. I mean, to the T, exactly like the way I want And they didn't want hassles. Either they weren't even planning with their own money anyway. A lot of these buyers are actually playing with corporate money. I made their life easier, so mm-hmm. I was then able to hire the people that that really sort of um, ascribed to my way of service and you know, quality, excellence, and all that. So it was really good. But there were times when growth happens faster than you planned. Mm-hmm. You have to really watch that because I see so many entrepreneurs starting with the same dream, and they never see their family, which is which is really a shame.
0: All right, we're gonna get right back to this interview soon because it is so good. But I just wanted to ask you a question. Do you feel like there's something blocking you from reaching the next level of income and revenue in your business? If so, I have the perfect thing for you. I call it the profit finder. And it's a fantastic quiz that's designed to find the unique key that's going to fit into the lock of your business and discover exactly what's stopping you from reaching that next level of profit. Now, not only are you gonna be able to get the quiz and your results, but you're also going to be able to get the next steps, the things, the actions, the strategies that you can use moving forward to get past this income plateau. Now, you're absolutely going to enjoy this quiz and you should definitely check it out today. It's called The Profit Finder again, and you can find it at wellpaidcreative.com forward slash quiz. So head on over there today Answer the questions, get your results, and unlock the profit potential in your business. That's wellpaidcreative.com forward slash quiz. All right. So let's get back to the interview. I love that. Yeah. So would you say that that growth, because you seem to have managed your growth yourself? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You have to. Mm -hmm, Definitely.
0: So was there a point where you reached a spot where? You said, okay, I have everything I need. I can now step on the gas and push this to, you know, from say a smaller amount every year to that, you know, $500 million mark.
1: Yeah. So the $500 million was a career total. And um, so I went from like, (laughs) yeah, so I may, I went from like a million dollars to 4 million. And then that was really almost like at a breaking point because you know, I needed to get, have more people. More people meant more space, office space, and they also meant more warehousing space because I was dealing with physical product. Mm-hmm. So, and then I and then I needed like bigger, um, you know, bigger safes, all of that stuff. So you start to your expenses grow pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. In many cases, they grow bigger than your revenue because you know you can't hire a quarter of a person. So if you hire somebody who's really qualified and you're paying them high wages there's going to be about a six month period where that investment really hasn't paid off. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's called a stair stepping of your your expenses. So you do have to really plan your growth. And if you don't plan your growth, uh, I call that instead of going broke, you're going to grow broke. Mm -hmm. So, and then here's the other thing too. A lot of times, you know, you'll, um, I went through this back in the early nineties, 94 or so if you remember a lot of department stores got consolidated you know they got mm-hmm. sold they they went out of business they could get, they got consolidated you know with the onslaught of the the price club costco all of those you know things coming in they just got consolidated in big time so if you're a supplier to them and they're going bankrupt you are not getting paid mm-hmm. so and then you've already forked out all this money so you really have to make sure that your growth is very carefully planned, and you have to manage your risk. You know, one of the things I talk about, if you read my bio, I did go and get my uh, degree at UCLA in economics, and then I went on and got my MBA. In the MBA school, they teach you a lot of things that I've had to kind of either go contrarian or unlearn altogether. And one of those things is that very thing. You know, when you set your goals, it's easy to think, oh my God, I can, you know, I can sort of outwork everybody. I can, you know, I can work Smarter, uh, you know, more effectively, and I can work more hours because I don't have to go to you know corporate meetings. I don't have to do this. I don't, there's all the things I don't have to do. So as a creative person, you're like, oh my god, this is wonderful. <laughs> and I went through that. So that's I can talk about this. You do this, and then in in MBA school, they teach you how you set your goals. You know, they they'll Basically, they all say the same thing, which is, you know, set your goals high and then make sure it's trackable, you're accountable, it's measurable, you know, all of those things. But they sound all great in theory. But if you run a division in a major corporation in America and you like, like, like right now there's COVID. So if people, you know, somebody says, well, we didn't meet our goal in 2020 because there was COVID and, uh, you know. We were supposed to increase 20%, but instead we declined 20%, which is kind of reasonable, right? Mm. Well, if you're in corporate America, you probably will get to keep your job with that excuse that there is COVID. You might even get promoted. I don't know. I mean, depending on who else isn't coming back to work anymore. But if it's your business and you've declined 20% instead of 20% ahead and you've already kind of planned your expenses that way.
0: Mm -hmm. It could be quite disastrous.
1: Well, you're going to go bankrupt. Basically, mm-hmm. if not this year, next year for sure. You know that's why a lot of people like you know trying to pivot, doing all this stuff. So when you set goals as a small business owner, especially somebody in creative field, because you know in creative uh, area, if you're truly creative and that's how you make your money, you just never know when your creative juices go out or when your style of doing something. Isn't desirable anymore, right? Mm -hmm. You never know when the rainy day is going to come. It's through no fault of your own. It's just the sort of nature of our business. So that risk management factor is huge. You really do have to make sure that when you set your goals, that the risk management is. So I always like if I I I never set my expenses based on what I think I'm going to get, you know, in revenue, because when you think you're going to get it, it's just all theory, really. You you really Mm -hmm. don't have it, right? So in my case. I thought I was going to get like, I don't know, $100,000 that year. And I ended up getting like $600,000. But my expenses were based on $50,000. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I had a very large, you know, basically a a profit margin that way. I mean, I didn't have any rents. I I ran my business out of my second bedroom, rented second bedroom. I didn't have an office space. So, what my inventory, instead of renting like an office space and having a jeweler's safe and a jeweler's insurance, I had none of that. I actually just rented a safe deposit box at a local bank. That was like a hundred bucks a year, which was a great difference in terms of uh, huge. Um, So yeah, I think that it's really important for people to understand that the way if you, if you have, if you come with like a college degree and you're trying to, or you're taking online classes or something like that, and then you're looking at, you know, this person is a keynote speaker from such and such an MBA school. You know, they don't, a lot of that stuff doesn't really apply in a small business, especially mm-hmm. in a creative business because we have different needs. And we our minds are like programmed differently, meaning that those kind of um, ways of doing business, they always wanna look at analytics, they wanna look at data, and that's great. But I've always made my money because I had a pulse on what's going on out there. You have a pulse on the emotional tug and pull of your consumer out there. And just touching their cord, that's not something that's really quantifiable. I'm mm-hmm. not saying you should do everything with your gut, but I'm saying that the gut is about 10 to 15% and that you need to exercise that because that's, that's what we excel
0: Mm in. Yeah. Creatives and their intuition is a huge part of the business for sure. So when you were growing your business from, you know, in your second bedroom to all of these offices, (laughs) what were some of the biggest tripping points you experienced along the way?
1: Well, there were so many. Um, I think when you first get your order, you get when you first get, I mean, I don't know, some, some, some people, like if you're just a graphic artist is one thing, but if you're selling a physical product, there are many factors before you actually get your money. So I was sketching pieces. Okay. So if you, you know, by the way, if you are coaching something and if you are a graphic artist and, you know, if you are, you know, doing logos for a company, you know, this is a lot of creative people do all of the above. You still Mm -hmm. should pay attention to the physical property side of this, because let me tell you something. If you are really great at something and you can say, you know, um, Victoria's design lab or whatever. I mean, think about even just doing like a little T-shirt or a logo that could be saleable. So all of these things actually come into play. But in my case, so I, I didn't have money to make samples, so I would actually sketch them. And I would go to the local department store. I had uh, Neiman Marcus, Sachs, all that stuff on on Radio Drive. And anything around 40-mile radius, I would actually just go in. You know, I had Nordstrom's, Macy's, all that. And I would Mm -hmm. go to the department store, and I I would have a lookbook of sketches. And I tell them, you know, hey, if you – I noticed that you don't have this type of jewelry. Because, you know, so going back a little bit, back in 1989, if – you probably are too young to remember this, but – we were the first generation of people that first generation of women going to work in a management capacity. So before Mm -hmm. then, you know, there were secretaries, you know, coffee girls or whatever, but, but we were the first generation where we, we sort of like strived to be um, equal to men in all areas of corporate life. Mm -hmm. So at that time, jewelry industry was catering to mostly nighttime jewelry, diamonds, you know, uh, this is two carats uh, GVS one for X amount. They really didn't have creative juices going there. They, they weren't it, they all the jewelry look like your mother's jewelry, which look like their grandmother's jewelry, okay? It was mm-hmm. all about you know selling carrot weight and, and the prestige of owning something expensive. Daytime jewelry was junky. It's a lot of costume jewelry, things that turned brassy, they were plastic, they 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 made like clinking sound. So women going to work, they we all looked the same. We all had, you know, like white button-down shirts with little pencil skirts, pumps, stockings. So there really was no way you could differentiate yourself from all the other female workers in terms of your personality, your elegance, how polished you are, how successful you are. You really didn't have a way, and you couldn't just walk in there and go, you know what. I'm Victoria Wick and I'm really, really successful. Like you can't talk that way, right? So mm. your jewelry actually makes that impression. So I designed this jewelry and then I went to department stores and I would ask the manage assistant managers. I love talking to assistant managers because the managers were always busy and they were never there. The assistant managers, they had a little time. And I would say, you know, I have this lookbook of jewelry for a lot of women who now have a lot of money. By the way, they were working. So they had money and they, they had a necessity to look good. Would you be able to sell it here? And I got such overwhelming responses, yes, yes, yes. But I waited until I got about eight styles that were sort of like commonly. A lot of people loved them. I mean, I had about Mm fifty styles. It was sketching; doesn't cost them a lot of money. So when I got the eight, I then made the samples of those eight, and they each sample cost me about three hundred dollars a piece, you know, to actually make the sample. But so going from sketching to samples okay you have to understand a lot of people looking at the aesthetics but when it comes when it comes in when the samples come in there is more than a 50 percent chance that the sample actually doesn't work they came Mm -hmm. in too heavy they didn't execute the key part of the design because a lot of sample makers are like sort of like engineers they they really don't don't understand what you were thinking emotionally so it could be the same scroll but instead of having like a wispy hand about it they might have like a very clunky hand. So you're like, whoa, mm. what happened here, right? Then you have things like hinges not working. Hinges might be way too tight. You might have sizing issues. So what happens is, you know, we we love, oh my God, somebody's gonna make the sample and I've got, you know, the, the department store buyer wants that. And, you know, I, I mean, my life is set. Well, no, <laughs> you got a long ways to go there. <laughs> so what I did was I actually, when the samples came in, um, I took it to Dallas instead of New York. New York is where my customers were. In New York is where the corporate headquarters were Saks, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Gordon Taylor. they were all in New York. I went to Dallas, which is a lot smaller market. There was nobody based in Dallas except like JC. Penney's. Um, and I you know called on small uh, like a wholesalers in the merchandise mart. That's like a wholesale mart. And though, nobody, no major design houses actually go there to call on them. They go to trade shows because they're very small, but they they still all had like 250, 500 customers that that, that they came regularly, like a small member pop who only owns one store. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sold a few and, uh, you know, I got like a, a $500 order, $800 order, you know, a few thousand dollars, and which was actually quite a bit of money for me at that time. And then when people make samples for you in my industry, they're not actually making production quality mold. They're just making a sample, like a handmade sample. So when the production piece comes in, there's yet another factor. A different group of people actually engineer the production mold. So when the production came in, sure enough, the hinges were too tight, the sizing was too large. So you know, I kind of worked out all those things because these people in the Dallas Merchandise Mart, they were kind of eager to help you. They cheered for you because I was like a little girl who had no clue what the heck I was doing. I was personable and I was honest with them and say, hey, you know, these samples came in and they just didn't feel right to me. You know, would you mind waiting or would you rather have this? So we, they waited. And so once I got all that fixed is when I then went to New York. And I think my first order from Saks was like 56,000 bucks or something. It was just like absolutely outrageously a lot of money at that time. You know, now Mm -hmm. looking back, it wasn't that a whole lot, but it was. So, so that's the, and that process that I just explained to you still goes on today with every new design, you know, there's from my mind, to mic pad, to the model maker, to the production model maker, to the consumer, there is interpretation in each each, place still. Mm -hmm. uh, And with every style, people can look at something differently. So you just have to be careful that you have the patience to kind of work through this. It's part of your process. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you think, oh, my God, this is great. And the customers love it, love it, love it until they actually get the merchandise and they're like, mm, I don't know, it doesn't look as good as the picture or you know, stuff like that happens. So yeah, you always have to be um, very conscious of the fact that at any point, you know, in that purchase order, something could go wrong. And, and when it does, it's not, it's not a killer. You just have to kind of figure out a way to work, what things do.
0: Yeah. And you know, I really think that that kind of defines the creative process almost in a nutshell. Yeah. That patience from start to finish, especially when you have that vision in your mind of what you know it should be or what you want it to be. And then it can be frustrating to go from having that vision and getting those, in your case, the samples and the pieces along the way that just don't quite match it. Right. Right, And being patient enough with the process to know that eventually you'll get there.
1: Yeah. And then, when I say that, sometimes you might be wondering, well, like how much patience do I really need? Because, as you know, a lot of creative people also tend to be kind of perfectionists and control mm. freaks. Okay, so yeah. I, I say it with love. I'm not saying you know in, that in any derogatory way whatsoever. I consider myself very similar to that. You, it, it took me a long time to figure out. You don't have to be a perfectionist. There is a difference between. You know, now I'm old enough to remember people like saying, you know, just start something. You know, you, you, there's the thing called the analysis paralysis, like just start something, learn as you go. There's mm-hmm. one, one theory out there. And then you've got people saying, don't launch anything because everyone's going to you know, trample all over you. Don't do anything until you, you know what the hell you're doing. I say that there is a difference between you need to walk the fine balance. If you. Don't know what you're doing, and you think you know something. You think you've got like four out of the ten things, and you're gonna learn as you go and you're gonna launch it. and you know a lot of people are telling you success, uh, failure is a part of your success, all that. so you think it's gonna be okay. Well, it is, but know the difference because you it's like if you're if you're planning on flying an airplane and building an engine while you're flying, that's pretty high risk, okay mm. <laughs> but <laughs> but if you're flying, and you're trying to figure out the engine's already there and everything is already there. We're trying to figure out, well, what color, you know, seats am I gonna have? That's a whole different kind of experience. You know, so what I'm saying is that as a creative person, remember which key factors must be there and must be perfect, because the engine better be perfect, otherwise, yeah, you know. You're going to not only kill yourself, but everybody else. Along yeah, the path. but
0: you might not have to be so stressed about like the color of the carpeting in the cockpit or right, something. Right, right, <laughs> exactly.
1: The other thing too is also figure out because, okay, you know, I, don't, I haven't had to worry about money for a couple of decades now, but money is reality when you first start. I remember mm. like literally like every, I was trying to figure out like, you know, nine cent for first class stamp and I had to figure out which 30 people get that, get my letter and stuff. It was really tough. So money is reality. So you have to also figure out when you're adding in features, when you're you know, just spending those extra 15, 16 hours a day, figure out what changes you make are the type of things that your customers will be willing to pay more money for. Mm -hmm. Because some changes makes no difference. It's like if you own a house, I'm no real estate broker or anything like that but you're going to like go through just hours and hours and hours of, you know, discussions and find like a hundred dollar doorknobs, you know, in your kitchen. Yeah. You know, you know what? You're probably not going to get a lot of extra money for that. Mm-hmm. It, it may not be. In fact, you might actually get less money for that. <laughs> you know, if it's really weird looking doorknobs, right. <laughs> so think about what changes you make that will cause the, the extra level of emotional connection with your customers at the end because some things are going to pay they're willing to pay more they're willing to pay a lot more i mean look at it look most of us drive through i mean i know i'm not speaking for everybody but most of us drive through probably 10 mcdonald's before we we find the first starbucks we're willing to wait for 30 minutes to get our coffee We're willing to pay five dollars for a cup of coffee rather than a dollar Because we value certain things about that coffee. I mean, Mm -hmm. coffee is pretty common. Let me tell you something. (laughs) You know, I'm a coffee holly. So think about those features that people are willing to pay more money for. And that's what you should be, because, you know, as a small business owner, all you have is your time and your expertise. Use it wisely. And there are some things that you you really need to have a lot of patience for. And there are other things you just move on. I mean, you know, that it takes a while for you to kind of get used to understanding that and do it automatically but i think a lot of creative people think oh my god this has to be perfect that's perfect it's really great but you know i i wonder if this is the perfect lavender you know for that font and you're like really that is not <laughs> they're not even going to notice the lavender most of your customers don't even know that's a lavender they can never think it's blue or gray so mm-hmm. if it's the primary message if it's the primary thing if, if it's your focal point yes it makes a difference but the rest of the stuff, you know. Don't sweat it, hey? When, yeah, when it's 80% there, it's just moving mm-hmm. on, you know.
0: I love that. Well, this has just been <laughs> fantastic. And I have so much more insight into the jewelry industry now. I love it. So what do you think is a good action step that someone could take listening to this interview?
1: Action step for, to start their business or? Oh, just growing their business. Yeah, I think that, you know, okay. You, you really hit like a, a chord uh, on this one. I hear so many people talking about motivation, inspiration, all of these wonderful words. They're great. I love you know waking up, being motivated by some quote or someone, but motivation, inspiration, uh, your desire to do something, they, none of that actually does anything for you actions mm-hmm. do, right? So I, what I do is, you know, when I was a uh, little girl in growing up in East Los Angeles, and there, it just seems like ev- all hope was lost. And I have gone through many times in my business where I think, oh, my God, is this it? Like, everybody told me that you're going to fail at the f- you know, first year, everybody fails and the second year the many people fail. And third year, maybe I just delay the inevitable. Maybe this is my end, right? So you, you have these moments when you, you have self-doubt, all that seeps in. But whenever I come to those moments, I think to myself, okay, well, all of this worrying, all of this negativity, all of the what-ifs isn't going to help me. So what is the one thing that I could do today, not tomorrow, today, that's going to help me do something? So, you know, be, way back when I was younger, the one thing I could do was learn the language. So I um, had my dad like pick out random words from a dictionary and I studied them while he was, you know, they both went to work uh, two jobs at like six o'clock in the morning. And I studied them as long as he was out, I was studying. And so I went from English to English dictionary. And so when you look up a word, look at a definition, there's like 20 words you don't understand because, you know, you're, you don't. So I, I did that as I grew older. You know when I started my business, so if you so in, in the start of my business, I wanted to make the 35,000. So it's great, but how was I going to do that? I broke it down to 3,000 bucks a month, basically, right? Thirty-five minus grand to 36000 would have been three grand a month. So 3,000 bucks a month, I needed to make that money, so how was I going to make it? I, I basically figured out what the return rate was for that direct mail, because we, we didn't have email back back then. They told mm-hmm. me the direct mail was like return rate on that was like one percent. Mm-hmm. So um, I figured since I was I don't know what I was doing, I'm, I'm I might even only get just half a percent. So I sent out fifty uh, letters, like a, physical letters, to department store buyers, duty free shops, all the little clothing shop owners. I mean, you name it. I, you know, I, I did a lot of research on that. I sent them out, hoping that I would get like. I don't know, like ten a month coming back. And it turns out because my my uh, list was so well researched and I really targeted each person because I, I had time to do that, my return rate on that was a pretty close to ten oh, wow. percent yeah, because I would take pictures, I would go out and take pictures with the throw camera. Um, it was like a Polaroid camera. and I would say, this is what you're carrying. You know that, it looks like it's really great, but you know here's my six pieces that I curated for you. And it's so new and it's so uh, different that it didn't make it to our catalog. I didn't have a catalog, but I said that. And, and, you know, these people would call me. And so that was really great. So that those are actionable steps that you can do. But let me just say something like this. You know, a lot of people let's say, you know, they might have put on a few pounds, you know, during COVID. I mean, every year at, between Thanksgiving and New Year's, we all put on some pounds. So if you say to yourself, you know what, I need to lose 10 pounds. And I'm just gonna make a make a point this year. I just mean it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna lose ten pounds this year. I, you know, there's no option. I'm gonna do this. Well, that's great. That's motivation. You're you're determined to do that. But that by itself doesn't do anything. But if you mm-hmm. said, I'm gonna lose one pound a week. I'm gonna lose ten pounds in the next ten weeks. So ten weeks, well, you're gonna lose ten pounds. It comes out to one one pound a week. And you say to yourself, Well, how am I gonna do that? Well, if I cut out three hundred calories a day. And so that would mean I either cut out, you know, bread or soda, something like that. And then I'm going to walk my dog for 45 minutes a day. You're going to get there the one pound a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are very manageable steps. So today, as soon as we're done with this, many of you sitting there going, you know what? I want to make more money next year. I want to, you know, uh, spend more time at home, you know, more, more. What I would suggest you do is define what that more money is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be 2000 bucks a month. It could be whatever. Define what that is. And then you can break it down to, okay, well, I'm willing to make, to make, to make the extra two, five grand, uh, you know, next month, I'm willing to put in 10 hours a week for this project. Right. So the 10 hours a week you're going to spend, what am I going to do this? I'm just going to just sit there and stare at the walls or whatever. You might go, you know what? I will do 30 minutes, three times a week of social media. And that gives me three posts, you know, per week or whatever you do. And I will spend, you know, two hours a week. That's two hours a week. It's not a lot of, you know, that could be like 20 minutes a day. In front of the TV, I'm going to do my lead generation. I'll do some research on that. I mean, even if I'm not actually getting names of people, I'm even going to learn how to, I mean, how to get leads, right? And I'm going to do, let's say, two hours a week of contacting people. And and then I'm going to do an hour a week. of. So you have your 10. If you do these things for four, five, six weeks, I absolutely guarantee you, you're going to see results. mm mm-hmm. And they don't have to be big results. They could be little things, because as I told you, my business started with no money. And I'm talking like all I spent in the beginning was sketchpad and a pencil. I, I didn't even have 30 bucks. That's actually, um, you know, that should be pretty inspiring, but I want to do more than inspire you. I want you to, I want to cause you to take action. I want you to, want to love to go out and take action. Mm. And that action could just be writing down your commitment to your future. That could be, look, if you have a family and you can do it, what, what that means is if you're right now, you know, in corporate America and you, and I say 20 hours a week, Saturday morning, four or five hours. And each day it's, it comes down to like a couple of hours a night. Most of us can do that for our future, and I'm not asking you to spend any money. I mean, this is just time, you know, just being effective. and maybe some people can just go, "You know what? I'm just gonna do this, and you know I'm gonna quit smoking cold turkey, and i'm gonna you know start making more money, cold turkey. Well, I know myself, like most of us do better if we have manageable actions that we can be accountable for. so if you let's say if you a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, I don't want social media, and a lot of people my age. I mean, they're not even that old, but they think like they're 90 years old and, you know, they're like, oh, I hate to, you know, tell people like I'm just breathing or, you know, and I I have a lot of author friends and I say, look, you have this wonderful message. You have this 30, 40 years of amazing experience that you want to share and nobody knows who you are and nobody knows you wrote the book. So how are they going to ever find you? If mm-hmm. you don't make it easy for them, right? It's, it's all about that customer finding you easier, and just make it easy for them. And I think that if you do this every day, I think you know I, I can't guarantee that you're going to make five hundred million dollars. I mean, I think there was a lot of luck involved in that too, but um, but I did make a lot of my own luck as well. But it's mm-hmm. it's just doing consistently little things, and the, the key word is every single day. You have to have some little action. It's not a theory. It's not motivation. You know, like we can all be motivated. The whole world is motivated. Mm -hmm. But,
0: (laughs) you know, I'm just saying. That was just fantastic advice. I love that. And I think I'm going to like put that into bullet steps down below (laughs) in the show notes.
1: (laughs) Well, it works for me. It works for me and it works a lot for a lot of people.
0: Well, and you know, it's often the most basic, what we think of as simple advice is the most powerful, right? It's not flashy, convoluted strategies that work the best. It's the the basics of taking action and doing the thing consistently.
1: You know, um... A very dear friend of mine has all these degrees from you know the PhD from Harvard and all that, and I asked one day, what is it that if you can sum up like the two things you learned, just two things you know i'm not smart enough to learn 20 things just give me two things that is uh, that was worth that education. And uh, this gentleman told me that 90% of the time every day he uses common sense. Mm-hmm. Only ten percent. I mean, what am I going to eat for dinner? Um, you know, who do I have to meet this morning? I'm um, driving from San Diego to Los Angeles. Which freeway do I take? Okay, these are the decisions you make every day, right? Mm-hmm. Only ten percent of the time in his life is he even ever pre- like presented with things that require higher education. <laughs> it's really true. So if you <laughs> think about if you're educated person. If you hit the market 90% of the time, how successful would you be? I mean, I'm no baseball like genius or anything like that, but I don't think Babe Ruth had a 666% hit rate. Mm. You know, you, you look at like basketball players that get their, their shooting range is like 65 or whatever. Nobody hits 90%. So if you just use your common sense, Because most people, they're right on common sense 90% of the time. You're going to do really well. Mm -hmm. But the problem is most people actually don't have actions that require you to use the common sense. And the second thing he said was, well, any decision is better than no decision. Mm -hmm. So instead of sitting there, well, do I want to take this project or that project? You know, is this right or that right? Is this color better? That you know, you're better off picking one and either it's gonna be right or wrong. If it's right, you move on. If it's wrong, you learn something. Hmm. But in a limbo, you're not going to learn anything. You're frozen, right? Yeah, that's so very true. So I thought, well, you know, that's that. Those are very, you know, great advice. That because I kind of su- I did suffer in the beginning of trying to be. I mean, I was like a real control freak, and I didn't want to show anything. To, I mean, even sketches, I didn't want to show to anybody until it was perfect. Mm-hmm. And um, now I've I've got gained some wisdom. Uh, realized that control thing was just um, either an ego thing or insecurity thing. It really wasn't, or maybe a company should have both, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. practical. So,
0: oh, that was great insight there. So I ask everybody on the podcast this question, and it's always fun to hear the answers. So do you have a hobby or an activity that you do in your time just for yourself?
1: I used to do a lot more i love music the 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 thing i do all the time for myself is read i i'm a avid reader i read about one book a week i like to read about one book a week but lately i've been you know about one book every other week because i'm also writing books so Mm -hmm. but i i'm a i'm an avid reader because when i was living in south korea it's a very tidy country it's very monolithic uh in terms of culturally at that time it is not that way anymore Because, you know, that was before the internet, before international, you know, global economy was just all, you know, meshing and merging into one. So the way I saw the world, the way I experienced outside my curiosity was through books. Mm -hmm. And uh, to this day, you know, I remain a very curious person. And I believe that every day you don't learn something is the day you die, start to die Mm -hmm. slowly, uh, at least creatively. So I love to read and um, that still gives me a lot of joy, you know? So. I love it. Wonderful.
0: Well, thank you so much, Victoria. This has been such an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed it. And we're going to put all of the links to Victoria's social media profiles and her website. You can go learn more about her, give her a follow and check her out. And uh, yeah, thank you
1: so much for your time today, Victoria. Thank you so much. And for those of you who really are in the creative field and you have a hobby, Come check out the Million Dollar Hobbies podcast, because that's the mm-hmm. podcast I host. And you'll see a lot of other stories like mine. All of my guests are people that have very similar stories of taking some crazy strange hobbies to, <laughs> you know, to amazing businesses. <laughs> and you would think they're not, they're not, I mean, anything spectacular. They're just everyday things, everyday people creating these million dollar businesses just by doing what I just told you. So check out mm-hmm. the million dollar hobbies uh, podcast. you wonderful. Be- yeah. And we'll make sure to put a link down below yeah. so people can go check it out. Thank you, well, so, thank much. you so much, yeah.
0: Victoria. And you have a fantastic day. You too. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the well-paid creative. All the discussions we have around these episodes mean a lot to me. And I love how much I learn from the creatives who listen in. Before we head out, if you want access to free resources, trainings, and a community of creative pros just like you, visit wellpaidcreative.com where you can find all this and more. Join me for the next episode as we continue discussing how you can grow and love a profitable creative business. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone you think would benefit. Thanks so much. See you soon.